Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you want to turn to Psalm 130. We look at that and work through that uh, today. Psalm 30 is a psalm of, um, of kind of psalmic royalty. Uh, because of the, the gospel elements in it, it has been a favorite of many of the church luminaries through the years. Um, as I've read through this uh, and listened to others, here are some of the ones who have been said that this was their favorite or one of their favorite psalms. First off is Martin Luther. That's, that's not surprising. Luther was attuned to anything that spoke of, of sin and forgiveness. But Calvin was said to love this one as well. And John Bunyan and Augustine of Hippo, very, the one that Luther and Calvin and Bunyan followed. This was the psalm that John Wesley heard the afternoon that he was converted. That's pretty spectacular, isn't it? And John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, wrote a commentary on Psalm 130 that is 300-some pages long. Um, you can download it off the Internet if you would like to read that much about Psalm 30. So this one is a favorite, isn't it? It's a great psalm. It's one of what are called the seven penitential psalms out of the Psalter, which are psalms that are, are more focused in on on sin and forgiveness and redemption than many of the other psalms that speak into the situations of life. And you, you can see that as we read through this this morning. It's a song of ascents. You can see that in the title. The title, by the way, is part of the psalm. So it's not something that's just added in. It's, it's part of the psalm. Uh, and usually it's, it's actually verse 1. So the, the, the psalms in the Hebrew are often... Uh, the verse numbers are different because of that. And last week we talked about the psalm of ascent. We talked how the, the, the ascending, the moving of pilgrimage as, the, as people would come to go to Jerusalem to the feasts and they would ascend the hills of Judea uh, to the heights of Zion and Jerusalem and how they would sing these songs and these psalms together as they would ascend, and then also as they would sing them as they ascended the, the steps into the temple itself, and into, into the court where the altar was, that these were songs of movement as they came close to God. And in this particular psalm, you can see it because it starts out in the depths, doesn't it, in verse 1. And then at the end is this, the heights of, of him ascribing that God himself is going to come and redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. And so there's this movement from the depths to the heights, which might surprise you is what I've titled the sermon. So it's a song of ascents, as well as a penitential song, as well as being a gospel-focused psalm, as well as being uh, one of the favorites of so many uh, church history guys. The structure of it is kind of simple. Um, you can see I put it in the A, B, B, A format. If you were here for uh, 
our E412, our Sunday school time this morning, we talked a little bit about that Hebrew way of thinking. He starts off with a lament of despair where he is in the depths, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, and his cry out to God to be attentive to him and for mercy. And then in the second section of verses 3 and 4, we see him addressing the matter of sin, his sinfulness, and God's position vis-a-vis that sinfulness. And so the confession of who he is, the confession of who God is, is in that second section. In the third section, then, is a confession of hope and trust. That because he's worked through who he is and he understands who God is, it brings in him a level of that waiting, hoping, uh, intertwining that gives him complete confidence in how the Lord is going to respond to him. And then finally, we have the song of assurance. So we've gone the, this, the song of despair to a song of... Maybe I should have put song of despair. That would have made it more synonymous um, or whatever. But anyway, you get the point. Uh, there's a song of assurance. And, and I want to point out to you there that, that like Psalm 121 that we looked at last week, remember in the first verse there, he talked about himself. I, I, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And then the rest of the psalm is him addressing other people. And we have the same thing in this psalm. The majority of the psalm is the psalmist working through this idea of, of his sinfulness and God's character in response to that. And then verse 7 and 8, it goes out into an address to Israel. You guys need to experience the same thing that I've experienced. And so we have that same, that same individual corporateness um, flowing out of this psalm. Uh, so that's kind of... Psalm 130, in a nutshell, it's been an impactful psalm through history, and, and I think that it uh, will hopefully speak to your soul as we work through it. So let's do that. Let's start off with uh, the lament of despair in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now, the depths in the Old Testament was perhaps the most terrifying image that the psalmist can use. This is meant to jar you, it's meant to startle you, to disturb you, because it describes the depths. He's at the bottom that he is crying out to. The troubles and the trials, that's normally how it's used. Uh, It's wonderfully unspecific, isn't it? He doesn't say what those troubles are. And in a real sense, that allows us to read it and to incorporate it into our lives, to talk about the depths that we're experiencing. It's kind of a a fill-in-the-blank type of thing for what each of us go through in life that we can cry out to God through. So the depths are significant. They show up fairly frequently in, in the Psalter. Let me read just a few verses from a different psalm, Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs in my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Later in the psalm, he says, Rescue me from the mire. Don't let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Don't let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. 
So that image of drowning for people who were not seafarers was a terrifying one. It was like that. A disturbing image that they were to grasp as they went under for the last time. John Steck in the NIV Study Bible helpfully lists a bunch of the contexts out of which uh, the, the depths described. It describes the grave or the pit, death itself, of silence or darkness, destruction. There's a violent element to it, the same with corruption. And then the dust, the mire, the slime, the things that, 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 that cover us and hold us down and, and we can't escape. And, of course, enemies. There's an element... Um, James Mays says in his commentary where, where the depths ex- described to us are our lostness in the sense of not knowing our way, where the feeling of, of chaos and, and despair and death outweighs the hope of life and goodness. And it's out of these depths that the psalmist cries. Perhaps, perhaps you're feeling something like that about your life too. But then Mays goes on and, and he points us very quickly that, that the thing that's different about Psalm 130 is it's not just the circumstances of life. It's actually that they're here associated with guilt. That what he is crying out from the depths are, are circumstances that are there because of sin, not just things that have happened to him in life or bad people who have done bad things to good people or or anything like that, that these are actually circumstances and contexts that have arisen because of sin. And he's crying out for mercy because of that. That this is a, a flood, if we continue the water image, it's a flood of wrong and the consequences of it that sweeps life along and that we can't get away from except we're giving this liberating and rescuing redemption that comes at the end. So the psalm speaks to our lives as we live lives as sinful people affected by sin. We cry out from those depths to the Lord for mercy. But this psalm is actually about uh, the Lord, isn't it? That from the depths, what He wants, what's going to be the solution to His plight is actually going to be the Lord's attention. Please pay attention. Be attentive to me. Hear my voice. And there's something that I'd like you to notice here. It happens three times in this psalm. If you look in verse 1, you see, O Lord, and it's, it's all capitals, isn't it? That's the divine name. That's the name of God as the loyal partner of Israel, the king who is in covenant with his people. But if you look in verse 2, you see Lord there in its lowercase, isn't it? And that is Adonai, master, the one who, who is in control. And so he's appealing to God as a loyal partner, but he's also appealing to him as the master who has been wronged and And he's crying out for attention and for mercy to him. And that deep combination of the God who has made promises and who is covenantly faithful at the same time as the God who is in charge and has requirements is essential for us to understand 
what the psalmist is saying. That God's love and his covenant loyalty is in harmony with his justice and his requirements. And we see that completely in Jesus, don't we? That as he pours out his judgment on Jesus, he does it because he's a loving God who wants to save. And you can see just in those names, the covenant loyalty of God combined with the mastery of God come together in a beautiful picture. And he asks that person to respond to him, to pay attention to me, to listen to me. The power of the word here. Think of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It's not just, hey, listen to what I have to say. No, it's, it's, it's hear this. Let it come into your being as, as the psalmist here is going under for the last time. That picture of the guy going down for the last time. He cries out. And, and he doesn't cry out saying, Oh Lord, I know that you see everything and you see what's going on. He doesn't say, Lord, I know that you hear everything and you, and you hear what I'm saying. No, he's crying out in a way that he wants to inform the all-knowing. He wants to call attention to the all-seeing. Please, it's relational, isn't it? Please, hear where I'm coming from. Give me mercy. The mercy flows out of that master-servant relationship of the second name of the Lord. Oh, by the way, I wanted to mention this. Look in verse 3. The first line, Lord is all capitalized. Second line, it's Adonai again, right? In verse 5, you see, I wait for the Lord, all capitalized. But in verse 6, he's waiting for Adonai. So it's, it's a strong theme in just a few verses that he's combining these names together uh, to describe the character of God. But it's, it's this master relationship that he appeals to I, I need mercy I know that I don't deserve this but be merciful to me and, and mercy as you know is is the the benevolent the the good and kind behavior and treatment of somebody who deserves otherwise and who could justly be treated otherwise and he says I know who I am I know who you are and I plea to you. Listen to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Don't treat me as I deserve. Don't treat me harshly. So as, as we end this little section, this first section, what, what I really want you to hear out of this is the relationalness of this individual. That he's crying out to the God who is a loyal covenant partner and he knows that he can be trusted. He's crying out to the God who is the master and he knows that he has transgressed him. He's crying out to the God that he wants to hear him and be attentive to him. This is a deeply relational moment where the psalmist is speaking to God and saying, I need for you to be attentive to me. And that is the solution that he wants for his depths, for his plight. So he moves then right into the confession of sin. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or should keep a record of sins, 
Uh, some other translations have. The NIV has that, I think. Oh, Lord, who could stand? I, I like Mark iniquities, I like, but I like keep a record because that's that keep word that we looked at from Psalm 121 last week, right? He, he keeps a record, but Mark is also a great word. It's somebody who, who marks these things down. Here's a picture of an old, of an old clerk who's marking things down. I think this is what the psalmist is talking about. If, if you kept a record of sins, none of us could stand. If you marked everything down. There's actually a better um, illustration of this, I think. Uh, many of you know that we had a daughter who was in gymnastics for many years. and I think one of the most spectacular things in sports is gymnastics judges. They are remarkable. So here's, here's a picture of a guy in the middle of a vault. Now those vaults only take a second or two, and you can see the judges, and what they're doing at that table is exactly what this guy's talking They're watching and noting. They're watching and marking. And they see everything. And if it wasn't for slow motion, the vast majority of us would never know what happened in that vault because it's so fast. But they see it and they note it. And that's what the psalmist is saying to God. If you were like these guys who noted and marked everything, nobody could stand. Stand is also um, a, uh, an image out of the Psalms. It, it could be to stand in judgment like Psalm 1 or to stand in the presence of God. Uh, there's two Psalms that kind of bookend a section earlier in the Psalter, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, and they say, who can, who can come live with you on your holy hill? Who can stand before you? And then it says, if the people, if they do these things, if they, if they follow the commandments and do what you've asked in the covenant, they can stand with you. These are the people who can live with you on your holy hill. Psalm 24 says, someone with a clean hands, in other words, their, their outward behavior is according to what God has asked, and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Their inwardness is right. This is the person who can stand. But the psalmist is probing this deeper, isn't he? He's saying, no, actually, actually, if you kept a record, even that wouldn't be enough. That, that we couldn't stand before you if you kept a record of everything because we are all transgressors of you, the Master. And so if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? Nobody. Nobody could. But this isn't a psalm about sins, actually. This is a psalm about the Lord. The Lord is the answer to this man's plight and, or woman, whoever's singing this psalm. And the point is, he's not like that. Look at the first word of verse 4. But, but with you, there is forgiveness. You're not like that. Psalm 103 says, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Or Isaiah 1 says that though your sins were crimson, they'll be white as snow. Though they were like scarlet, they'll be white as wool. There is forgiveness with him. He does not keep a record of sins. Do you know what that means? That means that what we so often think of as God as the guy who is up there, like this scribe, writing down what we're doing, just waiting for us to screw up so that he can smack us a good one. 
the psalmist is saying, that's not him. That is not God. With him there is forgiveness, and he's going to tell us at the end that it is plentiful, that it is full, some other translations have. That that's who he is. He is a forgiver. He is the one who has always beckoned people back. As we've been looking through the stories of Genesis, we've seen him beckoning people back to the garden, come back to a relationship. He does that by his promises. He does that by the covenants that he offers and, get, and, and enters into with his people. He does that through the sacrificial system by what, through which atonement and forgiveness can be given. He does that through the prophets. Yet the prophets right up to the end are saying, it's not too late, come back. Come back to this God who forgives, who wants to have this relationship. And the psalmist is saying, that's who he is. He is not a God who is angry, waiting to punish you. He's a God who forgives. But he's also the master. I don't know if you've read the Narnia stories, but in that first, the, cho- the children are with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the beaver says this, he goes, he's good, but he's not to be trifled with. He's the master, and there are requirements, but he is a forgiving and careful and uh, caring and, and loving God as well. This is about his character. And isn't it interesting then, it says, that you may be feared. I'm going to forgive so that, you can, so that you, God, will be feared. I think uh, for us, when we think of the word fear, it mostly has to do with with the terror and fright element. Kind of maybe what you felt when you saw that guy drowning a few minutes ago. But fear in the Bible, that's only part of it. There is some there. But it's much more the realization, the the, the full realization of who God is, that we have to treat Him with a reverence and an awe, but a love and, and a desire to serve. A recognition of his authority, but a recognition of his graciousness. And we respond with this full-orbed fear of the Lord in the Bible that, that doesn't really have to do with being terrified of him, but also, to quote Mr. Beaver again, that he's not to be trifled with, but that he would die for you. But at the same time, he requires you to love him and follow him the way he... You get my point. And the point is that forgiveness does that. Forgiveness draws us in closer to Him. That it's not a separating thing. As He forgives us, we become closer to Him and we love Him more because we see that glorious side of Him and not just as the terrifying God, but as the God who is willing to die for us and loves us. When the children of Israel were at Sinai and they were terrified by God's voice, and they told Moses, stop, stop, you listen to him and tell us what he said. Moses said immediately, the first thing that Moses says is, this is to test you to see if the fear of God will cause you to obey him more. Well, that's much more of the the frightening side of it, isn't it? But there's another story where Jesus had his feet washed by a woman with her hair as she wept over him. And, And he says to the Pharisee who was there, who who hadn't treated him with respect, hadn't treated him with any affection. He says, actually, this Pharisee's name was Simon. He says, Simon, 
the reason that she's like this is because she loves much, because she's been forgiven much. Because you haven't treated me this way because you haven't been forgiven much, so you don't love much. The forgiveness and the love draws us in and it actually increases that response that is called the fear of God to Him as He graciously forgives our sins. And so this idea that we have here of of the psalmist who has experienced God's forgiveness, who understands that he has no right to stand before God, that his sinfulness has alienated him from the master who he has transgressed, and yet it's God's faithfulness in, in conjunction with that that draws him in and gives him forgiveness and, and elicits an even closer response. That's what prompts him into the third section of the confession of hope. That the psalmist has seen God for who He is. The profound realization of His forgiving nature. And the psalmist is waiting for the Lord. The waiting um, is interesting. There have been a number of suggestions in the commentaries about what is the psalmist waiting for? Is he, is he waiting for the priest's blessing after the sacrifice has been offered, uh, kind of the numbers six thing where, where he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Some have thought that's what he's waiting for. And so they put it into the temple sacrificial context. Others have thought that he's waiting for a new experience of, of God's salvation. He's waiting for some, um, some event where it's confirmed in his life. Others have thought that he's waiting for a word of forgiveness to come, perhaps again through the priest. Um, I think that if you read verse the first line of verse 5 and the first line of verse 6, the psalmist is pretty clear what he's waiting for, isn't it? What is he waiting for? The Lord. He's waiting for God Himself. Because again, as I'm saying, this is a psalm about God. He's waiting for the Lord relationally to come and to affirm to Him that He is forgiven. That God is pleased with the sacrifice that has been made. That God is pleased with Him because of the sacrifice that has been made. And so it doesn't exclude the sacrificial system, but it is a very experiential, relational thing. He is waiting for that affirmation that reconciliation has been made and that things are right with him, with God. And so it's, it's, a, it's a waiting and a hoping. Now hope, again, is a word that we so often think of as, boy, I hope that the Rockies win the game this afternoon. Well, that's not a very certain hope, is it? Not, not this year. I hope that I will get this job offer. I hope. It's a, it's a statement that we make in the face of uncertainty, right? But the psalmist, when he speaks of hope, is making a statement in the face of certainty. It's, it's a sure hope. It's what he's waiting for. Um, it's one of the aspects of Fearing God is understanding that His timing is what matters. 
But it's very important that, that what this little section is saying is it's not a matter of if. That's, that's the way we think of hope. If this, I hope that this will happen if it happens. This is a matter of when. It's going to happen. And this dawn is coming. The, the watchman on the wall is watching for that break of light when he blow the horn and announce to the city that it's time to get up and move again. It's not a matter of if it's coming. The only thing that will keep the dawn from coming is the end of the world, and that's not really the, what this psalm is talking about. It's a matter of when. The psalmist knows with full confidence that the dawn is coming, and he is waiting for God to meet with him and affirm the gracious forgiveness that comes. It's a, it's a, the, the idea of waiting is used many times in the Old Testament, many times in the prophets. And if I can try to maybe define it a little more for you, it's, it's when in the present moment we can gain strength and we can gain confidence and we can gain courage based on the certainty of what is going to happen. So we know that because this is going to happen, we can act in a certain way now because we have that surety. We know that God is coming. We know that God is forgiving. We know that the covenant Yahweh forgives even though we have transgressed. And out of that certainty, we know that He is going to forgive us and He is going to treat us well. And so we wait for that. Now the important thing about waiting here, I think, is it's very much a time, a time-oriented word, isn't it? We, we have to wait for God's timing. Well, the forgiveness is immediate. And, and it's as sure as the dawn is coming. But as we've talked about the depths, the depths aren't just sin, but they're sin and its consequences. And we have to wait because although God forgives and forgives immediately, sometimes the circumstances of sin take much longer to unravel and to be healed and to be made okay. And so some aspects of redemption we have to wait for. And let's just be honest, some aspects of redemption are not going to happen until Jesus comes back and sets everything right. That sin can be so deeply embedded in us that it's going to take His glorification to unravel all of the mess. But we know that there is forgiveness with Him and that does not take time. He is willing to forgive, anxious to forgive, and to pull people back into relationship with Him. And so the psalmist is waiting, waiting for affirmation that all has been made right and then that brings us to the final part the song of assurance and again here he has gone through this process in verses 1 through 6 of understanding who he is as a sinner understanding the the, the depths that he's in and that God although is not uh, required to show mercy. He's not required to show attention. 
because he has been transgressed and yet as the loyal covenant partner who has said, I will be with you always. I am your God. You are my people. I will forgive. He knows the surety that God has done that. And I forgot to mention that. It's kind of an important point. Look back in the previous section in verse 5. What is it that the psalmist puts his hope in? It's in God's Word, isn't it? How do you know that God will forgive you? How do you know that He's going to meet you with forgiveness and with a sense of being satisfied that you're reconciled? How do you know He's going to do that? The only reason you know that is because He has said that He will do that. It's based on the very veracity of God. That's what the psalmist has his hopes based in is that God has said these things. He's entered into covenant. He is the God who can be trusted, and so he places his hope in that. And that's what he is then proclaiming in verse 7. You put your hope in him as well because there is forgiveness with him, and there is steadfast love or unfailing love. That is, it's called love. And, and there is a great element of love to it. But perhaps if we called it covenant loyalty, you would get more of an idea of what that is. It is a love that is there. It's deeply committed because of the covenant. It's an expression of who God is. And so God's steadfast love is greater than the covenant. But we understand it through the covenant that He has said, this is what I will do. This is who I am. This is how I will act. And you can count on it. I will always be that way. I think that's why the ESV uses the word steadfast. You can absolutely count on it. And so the psalmist says, this will happen. You can trust the dawn is coming because of his steadfast love. Kind of mixing metaphors there. But he's saying the surety of God's forgiveness, the surety of who he is, is coming because of his deep covenantal commitment that his behavior is right and loyal according to the covenant. It's grounded in the surety of God Himself, in His Word, in His steadfast love. It is right behavior. And just a little, well, it's not really an aside, but this is where we get the idea of righteousness from. So there's more to righteousness than just this, but this is the predominant image that right behavior is behavior that is correct according to the agreement the covenant that God has made and the requirements that God has made so one is righteous when one does what God says but if he kept a record of sins who could stand no one except for the righteous one himself that Jesus never failed in this. Jesus never compromised in this. Jesus never transgressed God as, as the Adonai, the master. He was complete, absolute righteousness. Not just the righteousness of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 of, of being a good covenant partner. His, ab, his righteousness was absolute. No sin, no transgressions ever. And that was the righteousness then that He offers to us.
through his death and resurrection. And God has that kind of loyalty, that kind of righteousness, that kind of security that comes from the covenant, that kind of security that comes from the promises, that kind of security that comes from his presence interacting with the psalmist. He can be trusted because this is who he is, even when the depths are all around us and we feel like we're going under. With him is a plentiful redemption and it's sure because of his faithfulness I think the most striking thing for me then is the last line of the psalm he himself he God will redeem Israel from all their sins that's a statement that is, is a bit jarring to me because it's a bit It's a bit reaching for the Old Testament. All their sins redeemed by God Himself. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, A little known fact, but there's at least a dozen times in the law that it says that the priest will offer a sacrifice for a worshiper and atonement will be made and he will be forgiven. That's the word. He will be forgiven. And I think oftentimes we hear um, uncareful talk, uh, maybe you know, people preaching or teaching and wanting to stress the difference between the Old and the New Testament. And we can hear that it uncareful, the blood of, what did the blood of bulls and goats do anyway? You know, that old system is old, it's fading away, and wasn't that good to begin with. The Lord didn't actually want sacrifices. What he wanted was a pure heart. And the, the Old Testament system of sacrifice kind of gets degraded in our minds, and we don't think of it as, as much that's very special. But this guy did. This guy thought that there is steadfast love, there is a full, plentiful redemption, there is security in the promises, in the covenants, there is forgiveness, there is the the relationship of fear. That Old Testament system was pretty important to him. And I think that we need to think about it that way, that that Old Testament sacrificial system was instituted by God, and it was amazing and powerful. And if you try to wrap your head around it, you might be smarter than me, but, but if you're kind of on the same level with me, you're going to get amazed. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard because it's an astounding system. Let me, let me try this. Give you an example of what I'm talking about. Back in the 1980s, this car was imported from Europe, from the Soviet Union. Anybody know that's name? It's a Yugo. And the Yugo was not a good car. It was not built out of the, um, the engineering that we have now. It is considered and, and is unanimously considered the worst car ever built. Uh, it was sold really cheap. That's why they sold them here. But the problem was they, they looked really good sitting at the shop or in your driveway because they seldom ran. And here's my point. If we think of the Old Testament system as a you-go, that the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins, 
when it says directly that it can. Now that's different than Hebrews says where it says it can't take away sins. Taking away sins is different than forgiving sins. And what the writers of Hebrews is saying is the blood of bulls and goats can't solve the sin problem. But it could provide forgiveness. It could provide this reconciliation that the psalmist is so longing for. But if, if we think of it in low terms, if we think of the Old Testament system as a yugo, how good do you have to be to be better than a yugo? I mean, you can be an AMC pacer. You remember those? They look like bubblegum machines. Maybe the second worst car ever made. But, but it's better than a Yugo. And that's the problem. If we think of the Old Testament system and don't think of it high enough, then when we think of Jesus, how good does Jesus have to be to be better than a Yugo? He, he can be an AMC pacer, and he's better. But that's, that's not what we see in the Bible. What we see in the Old Testament system is the picture of him, how to understand who he is, how to understand what he did. And the more that we get into, the more wonderful it is, and the more we understand that this writer could say there is forgiveness, there is redemption. This is a wonderful thing, even though it's horrifying and it's incomplete, and we have to do it again and again and again. But if we begin to see the Old Testament system as a Lamborghini, of which it was compared to all the other nations around it, if the Old Testament system provides reconciliation with Yahweh Himself so that we can come to... What is better than the Lamborghini? <laughs> I thought of that. I thought, I thought, I thought whoever I, if I choose Maserati, it'll be Bugatti. If it's a Bugatti you know. But you get my point. And I think that's where the, old, the New Testament writers come in. What's better than a Lamborghini? How do we describe Jesus? Because what, what was back there enabled the people of God to have a relationship with Him. Now what? And the writer of Hebrews is basically reduced to saying, well, He's just better. He's got better doors. He's got better grills. He's got everything about the Old Testament season. Jesus is better than. But it's hard for Him to describe because Jesus is so much better than what was there, which was already a Lamborghini. You get my point? The higher we lift, the better we understand what God did for His people in the Old Testament, the higher we raise Jesus because He's better. And that's the point of this last line in the psalm. What on earth was He thinking when He wrote that? It's no longer bulls and goats who are going to redeem Him. It's not the red heifer with its ongoing sacrifice that's going to redeem. It's Him. He's going to do it. That's why I think it's so far-reaching that something is going to happen that's going to be different. This is all about God. And what he's saying there in this last line is God Himself is going to redeem us. It's not going to be that system anymore. He's going to, how's He going to do it? I don't know. He doesn't say. <coughs> We're not going to find out for another 1,500 years. And then we'll find out it's pretty literal. God Himself is going to come. Jesus is going to come. And He is going to be that full redemption. He is going to be the sacrifices that bring forgiveness. He is going to be the peace offering that symbolizes recognition. The, the, the red heifer that symbolizes that it's done once and for all and doesn't have to be done every morning and every night. He is going to redeem us from all of our iniquities. All of the consequences of our iniquities all of the entanglements of sin in our lives, He is going to take care of it all. 
It's a remarkable line, isn't it? And so we are confronted there at the end that this psalm is not so much about sin and forgiveness. This psalm is about the Lord, the covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God who forgives and who loves and who wants people to be in this relationship characterized by the fear of God, whose certainty comes from His very character and His very word, and who will Himself show up and complete. He will be better than a Lamborghini because all of sin will be taken care of in verse 8. And that's what we know that Jesus has done. To take all of sin upon Himself and offer all of forgiveness and reconciliation and relationship to those who follow Him. Who follow Him because there's a new covenant in His blood. The covenant God is Jesus. But He's also the Lord, isn't it? He's also the one who says, take up your cross and follow me. He's also the one who says, I take you to myself and you die to yourself. He fulfills this psalm because this psalm ultimately is pointing us to him, understanding what he did for us on the cross. And so in summary then, for sinners who cannot stand before God because they have had their iniquities marked. And he does not miss anything. He's the God we saw last week who sees everything. This is what he promises out of this psalm. The presence and the experience of himself to those who cry out to him in need of his people. The surety of his words and his covenant and His authority, and His forgiveness. The plentiful redemption that was pictured for us in the Old Testament and then brought to its glorious, infinite completion in Jesus Christ. The steadfast love that He has towards His people, which will never fail and never end. Personally redeemed by God Himself. And the sure certain hope that's a pretty spectacular list isn't it for people who are in the depths and who cannot stand before him this is what he has done for us and his plan all along again with that verse 8 reaching beyond the constructs of the Old Testament he's going to do it himself for us in our Lord Jesus Christ Well, let's take just a few minutes and uh, in silence and think about this psalm, its remarkableness, and, and maybe how the Spirit has impacted you through some of these words before we come and sing our final songs together.